So within the, uh, the last decade, there has been a phenomenon known as deep fake. Has anyone here heard of deep fakes? Okay, so a few people have. So for those who haven't, I'll give you a definition. A deep fake, deep fakes are synthetic media that have been digitally manipulated to replace one person's likeness convincingly with that of another. So you may receive a video thinking that it's a video from your friend, but in reality, it's someone entirely different using deep fake technology to make it look like your friend. It's kind of wild. In fact, movie companies have been using this technology now. Uh, most recently uh, that I've seen was by removing age from actors. So we see this with the new Indiana Jones movie where Harrison Ford, who is is pretty old man. They have several scenes of him looking extremely young. And my wife and I watching this, we're like, how, how did they do that? Find out that it's, it's deep fake technology. Or they have even used actors that have passed away to film some scenes. So, for instance, Peter Cushing in Star Wars Rogue One. So this, this technology is, is quite remarkable. And it's also a little bit scary, if you think about it. However, the good news is that experts say there are, there are ways to identify these deep fakes. So one source said that to identify deep fake videos, pay attention to visual and audio inconsistencies. So it goes on to say, if you enlarge the video and zoom in, you can see that the words and the lip movements don't quite match. They say that in some instances where the person's mouth is open, where you should see teeth, there's not teeth, and in other scenes there are, there are teeth. There's inconsistencies between what you are hearing and what are, you are seeing. And the, the question that we see in this text here, this text that we're coming to in James 2, which commentators have said is one of the most misunderstood texts in all of the Bible, is James trying to answer the question of how can real faith be identified? Because there is fake faith out there. There's deep fake faith out there where people will claim, but there's an inconsistency. They'll claim the faith. There's an inconsistency between the audio, the, the words coming out of their mouth, and the visual, the actions of their life. How do you spot real faith from fake faith? And as we march through this passage that James has for us in the second half of chapter 2, what we're going to see is that genuine faith is identified by action. Genuine faith is identified by action. In fact, we just read that in our, in our article of faith, the statement of faith, article 7, where the last verse, if you turn to the back of your bulletin there, the, 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 not verse, the last sentence there, says that the proper evidence of regeneration appears in the holy fruits of repentance, so turning away from sin, faith, it's a proper belief, and newness of life, new actions that reflect that belief. And so James here, he's writing, and he's writing early. This is one of the earliest New Testament books written. It was written in the mid-40s, and he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed. They've experienced some persecution, and some were beginning to walk away from the faith. Now, others were still claiming the faith, but they were just, they stopped living out their faith. So under immense persecution, some just walked away, others held firm, others tried to hold a middle position where they're claiming the faith, but they're not living out their faith. 
And James makes the, the point throughout this whole book that genuine faith works. You can't get around it. Genuine faith is going to have action that flows from it. In chapter 1, we saw that genuine faith trusts that trials and temptations, they bring us closer to God. It's not that the Christian is immune from trials and temptations. We're going to face them. However, we genuine faith trusts that God is using those to bring us closer to him. Latter half of, of chapter 1, we see that genuine faith not only hears the word, but does it. They're doers of the word and not hearers only. And then earlier in chapter 2, we saw that genuine faith doesn't show partiality. Instead, it seeks to treat everyone fairly, just as God does. And so now today, we're, we're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and I, and I think James has broken this, these verses up into two big sections. So the first are verses 14 through 17, where if you look in your bulletin, uh, you'll see two blanks. That first blank is dead faith. Dead faith. And then in the remainder of the chapter, verses 18 to 26, James paints for us a living faith. Verses 14 through 17, dead faith. Verses 18 to 26, living faith. And if you're turning there, uh, you're going to look for Philemon, Hebrews, James. If you get to the Peters, you've gone too far. If you're using one of the Blue Provided Bibles, it's going to be on page 1012. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, that blue one right there, that is yours to take home, yours to keep. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 through 26. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, as we look at this, we ask that you would grant us a spirit of understanding. This, this passage is a popular one, and there's a lot of misunderstanding around it, so God, please help me speak clearly. Lord, we pray that you would help us all see what is in this passage and give us a, a greater understanding of it. And we pray that we would be a people that walk in a living faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So that first blank in your bulletin, dead faith. 
James starts off this section with two rhetorical questions. So the first one is he asks, what, what good is it? And the point that James wants to make right away, right from the get-go, right out of, right out, right when the gun goes off and the horses are going, the point that James wants to make right away is that faith, quote-unquote faith, with no accompanying evidence has no value. No value. It's no good. I was walking through uh, D.C. earlier this summer uh, with a friend of mine, and we walked by the White House, and he jokingly dared me to sprint full speed to the White House just to see if I could get, to the, get there, just to touch the house. And apparently, he, he said that somebody earlier had actually done that, and they actually got to the door, they touched the door before being tackled and arrested. And so he looks at me and he says, you think you can make it to the door? And, spoiler, I did not try. But, let's say I did. And after being tackled, I say, and I insist, and I'm just letting these guys know, I live in the White House. I just insist, this is where I live. I'm just sprinting because I want to get in quickly. They may ask around, they may do a quick database search, but sooner or later, they're going to realize that there's zero evidence that I actually do live in the White House. And my claim will be no good. And so the question of what good is it, James is answering it, is that it is no good. It's a rhetorical question. So he, he's getting to the point, what good is it to say, I have faith? And there'd be zero evidence to support that claim. It's no good. Even in our fallen court of law, we don't accept answers like that. We don't accept claims. So if evidence puts you at the scene of a crime, and your defense is, well, I wasn't there. However, there's no evidence to support your claim. That claim is not going to save you from a guilty verdict. Which leads James to ask his second rhetorical question. Namely, can that faith save him? And the answer is no. That quote-unquote, faith, can't save him. Why? Because it's not true faith. It's just empty words. And friends, we're saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. That's how the Reformers would put it. And so if someone says, I'm a Christian, or I'm a follower of Christ, and there's zero evidence that this person is actually following Christ, is it safe to say that that person is a follower of Christ? Christ goes this way. You say, I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm going this way. Is it safe to say that you're a follower of Christ? Can just saying, I have faith, save? Or does one need to actually possess faith? Do you see the difference there? Just saying I have faith versus actually possessing faith. Well, similar uh, to early in chapter 2, James offers an example to make his point. So we see this in verses 15 through 17, where we read that if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So James points out two things that this person needs. Two things. Clothing and food. Be warm and have a full stomach. And so does saying be warmed to someone who is cold, hey, be warm, be warm, be warm. Does that actually make them warm? No. In the same way to saying, be filled, have a full stomach, have a full stomach, be filled. Does that actually fill their stomach with food? No. That person actually needs food and needs clothing to live. And if all that person has are empty words with no action, then that person is going to die. Similarly, we need faith in Christ to live. And if all we have are empty words, then friends, we'll experience eternal death. Which is why James says in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he uses a physical example to make a spiritual point. That person over there who needs food and clothing, if you just keep saying the words, but there's no actual action behind it, then that person is eventually going to die. Spiritually speaking, if we just say, I have faith, without actually possessing faith, then we too will spiritually die. At this point, it's important to point out that James is not referring to genuine faith when he says faith here. That's what can make this passage confusing, is James says faith, and he uses it in two different ways. So he uses the word faith to identify fake faith, put quotes on that, does this faith save him? But he also uses faith, the word faith, when he's talking about genuine, real, biblical faith. And so here in verses 14 and 17, James is referring to the claim of having faith. So it's fake faith. The claim alone does not save. The claim, however, is proven to be true when action follows it. So if you go out to eat, you go out to dinner at the end of the meal and the waiter brings the bill, if you look at the total and then look back at the waiter and tell him, I have enough in the bank to pay for this, and then hand him the bill without actually having paid for it, you're going to find out real quick that that does not work. What actually needs to happen is you need to take the money from a bank and then give it to that waiter so that the meal can be paid for. Claiming the money is there doesn't pay for the meal. The money actually has to be there. In the same way, claiming to have faith doesn't save you. The faith actually has to be there. Just like real money in a bank is what pays for the meal, so also real faith in Christ is what saves. And friends, real faith is identified by good works. That's what James is getting at. Real faith is identified, you can spot it, by good works. Claiming to have faith in Christ isn't saved. One is saved by actually having faith in Christ. And real faith is always identified by good works, which leads us to the second point in your bulletin. We see a living faith. So James now gives examples of what this looks like. And he now addresses the opposite argument. So it's interesting, in verses 14 through 17, James was talking about someone who claims to have faith but has no works. And now he addresses the opposite argument, 
where he says at the beginning of verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So this opposite argument is, I have works, James, but no faith. So I'm, I'm in good standing, right? And James introducing this imaginary discussion partner, it was a common technique. But what James wants to point out, and he jumps straight to it, is that faith and works are inseparable. In fact, he says that faith is revealed by works. In the second part of verse 18, he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying you can't. You can't show me your faith apart from your works. What we believe is always exposed by the way we live. Many of you are sitting in a chair or sitting in the bleachers. And you're, you took a seat because you do actually believe that the chair is going to hold you. If you didn't think that the chair or the bleachers were going to hold you and they were all just going to collapse, then the majority of you would be standing up, understandably. But whether it's the chair we sit in or the water that we drink or food that we eat or the car we drive or the clothes we wear or the job we perform, every action of ours is rooted in belief. We drink bottles of water because we believe that it's good for us and that water is safe to drink. We eat the food we eat because we think it's good for us and it, we think it's going to taste good. What we believe, what we have faith in, is revealed by our actions. Does that make sense? What we believe is revealed, it's exposed by our actions. And that's what James means when he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Friends, simply stating theological truths doesn't save anyone. Simply stating a theological truth doesn't actually save anyone. But true and saving faith is marked by belief and good works. And to make his case, James points, points out the demons. And notice, James, he points out that the demons do believe. They have, quote, faith. But their faith doesn't lead them to good works. Do you see that distinction? He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Notice the sarcasm here. You're doing great. You believe God is one. Great job, buddy. But then he says, even the demons believe. And they respond with good works. No. That's not what he says. He says, and they shudder. Their faith, their belief does not lead them to good works. Their faith leads them to shaking. The demons know God, but they know God as, they don't know him as Savior. They know him as judge. And the thought of him judging them for their rebellion causes them to tremble. Friends, knowing facts about God won't save you. That kind of faith, just knowing facts about God, is equivalent to the faith of the demons. One commentary said, mere mental assent to the Christian faith does not save anyone. The faith that saves embraces the truth of the gospel and acts accordingly. Embraces the truth of the gospel and acts accordingly. And to further illustrate, James uses two examples from the Old Testament. In verses 20 through 25, we read about Abraham and Rahab. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, before we go into verse 21, just to this point, notice how James 
has, I, has described this faith without good works. He says it's no good in verse 14, it's dead in verse 17, and it's useless in verse 20. So now continuing in verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So I want us to notice a few things about these, these six verses. So the first is notice the difference in examples. We see Abraham, who is a patriarch, who is prominent, he was powerful, he was the father of the nation of Israel. And sure, he has mistakes. He's not perfect, but he's not an awful guy. You can think of worse people in the Old Testament. And then we see Rahab, who was not originally an Israelite. She was lowly. She was entrenched in a lifestyle of sin. She was a prostitute. James could have just said, think of Rahab, but he added in Rahab the prostitute. I wonder how many marriages Rahab destroyed. I wonder how many families she broke up or how many times she got pregnant outside of marriage. And friend, I wonder if you're here and maybe you consider yourself more like Abraham or maybe you consider yourself more like Rahab. If others could see every dark moment of your life, what would they think? Would they consider you to be more like Abraham or would they consider you to be more like Rahab? Abraham, yeah, the person has mistakes, but he's not the worst person in the world. Or like Rahab, who seems to be the very essence of sin. And the truth is, regardless of what others may think of you, regardless of what you may think of you, Jesus, through James, God, through James, is making the point that the Abrahams of the world and the Rahabs of the world both are considered unrighteous by God. And both need to be made righteous. Do you see the difference in examples there? Abraham, this guy that every Jew would look up to, and Rahab, who was brought in, but, I mean, she's, she's not on the same level as Abraham. The difference in examples that James is pointing out here is to highlight that regardless of where you are, you are considered to be unrighteous by God, and you need to be made righteous. You're not in two different camps. You're in the same camp. You are considered unrighteous. Which leads to the second thing to notice in these passages, which is the way we're made righteous. So how is Abraham, an unrighteous sinner, suddenly seen by God as righteous? Was it because he worked hard enough? Or because he loved his family and provided for them? Or because he did the best he could? No. If you look at verse 23, what you see is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was made righteous by believing God. And friends, we too are made righteous by believing God through faith alone. Not just by believing that there is a God, even the demons believe that and know that. 
but by truly believing what God has said. Because if you truly believe what God has said, then action is naturally going to flow from that. Belief, friends, generates action. So I've, I've never driven my car to the point where it literally had no gas. I've come close, but I've never actually hit it to be totally empty. So I can't tell you that it has been totally empty and it still works. But I truly believe that if the tank is empty, the car won't run. I actually really do believe that. Now, I also have never put anything in the tank other than gasoline. So I can't tell you that I put water in it and it worked, or that I put juice in it and it worked, or milk in it and it worked. I mean, who knows, maybe the whole fuel industry has us all fooled. And your cars can actually operate on anything that's in the tank. You just got to put something in there. But the reason I haven't filled it with anything else is because I truly believe my car needs gasoline to run correctly. And look, you know how you can tell that I actually believe that? It's because I've never put anything in the tank other than gasoline. That when the, the fuel gauge gets low... I keep going back to the gas station to fill it with gas because I truly believe that when the tank gets slow, if it gets empty, it's not going to run. And I know that I need to refill it with a specific thing, and that specific thing is gasoline. Because I believe, I truly believe those two things, I keep driving myself back to the gas station paying too much for gas. My belief generates action. Your belief generates action which leads to verse 26, where James summarizes his point. He says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So look, a body isn't considered alive just because it's physically present. So also faith isn't considered genuine just because it's verbally stated. So look, I'm... I'm supposed to attend a memorial service next week for a friend who unexpectedly passed away. And chances are his body is going to be there. But there's not going to be any confusion as to whether or not he's alive. And if someone says that they have faith, but there are no signs of faith, then perhaps that is not a living faith. So to the untrained eye, breathing, friends, is the easiest way to tell if someone is alive or not. Sooner or later, if that person is alive, they are going to be breathing. They might hold their breath for a little bit. They might not be breathing for a a moment. But sooner or later, if that person is alive, they're going to breathe again. Similarly, genuine faith has signs of life. And those signs of life are good works. There may be seasons where those signs are less noticeable, less visible, but... Sooner or later, if it's a living faith, there will be signs of life again. So what are some signs of life? Well, James right here is pointing out the sign of of good works. But there's also conviction of sin, love for God, love for others, a desire to do what God says, to obey his word. There are multiple signs of life. But friends, if it is a living faith, there is going to be signs of life. 
And those signs may be more or less noticeable given seasons, but there will be signs. So now, I want to address a few misconceptions about this text. So someone might be reading this, and they might be reading, Rob, you've said we're saved by faith alone, and you've said that a few times. And I mean to say it. But Rob, what about verse 24? How can you say we're saved by faith alone when the verse literally says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? How do you, how do you justify that, Rob? Well, yes, that is scripture. And we never want to disregard scripture, but scripture must interpret scripture. And so we also see in Romans 3, 28, 28, as well as other places, but for sake of time, it's not going to go through all the verses, but in Romans 3, 28, we see that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so the key to understanding this, this passage is knowing that Paul, who wrote Romans there, says that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, and James, writing here, they use the word justified differently. They use it in two different ways. Just like James used the word faith in two different ways to to describe real faith and fake claimed faith, Paul and James are using the word justified differently. So Paul, when he uses it, he's using it in the the way where where we would describe someone as being acquitted, as being deemed not guilty. That's how Paul is using it. He's saying we are justified, we are acquitted from God. We are seen by God as not guilty through faith alone, not not through works of the law. Now, the way James is using it, James uses justified in the sense of being vindicated or proven to be right. One is vindicated. One is seen to be right. Now, look, this happens in our language all the time. So it's not an uncommon thing. But think of the word plant. Does that mean to bury something? Or does that mean the green vegetation that we see sprouting up? Or orange, are we referring to the color or the fruit? Or left, are we speaking directionally? Or are we saying that someone got up and went away? Or right, is that directionally? Or is that an affirmation? In fact, this once happened to me while riding in the car where the driver will say, hey, I'm going left up here. And I'll say, right. And they'll say, well, wait, am I going right now? Or, or are you saying that, uh, correct, I'm going left. I say, oh, sorry, correct, you're going left. We use words in different ways. And James and Paul are using the word justified differently. And so in verse 24, when we see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James is saying someone who claims the faith, they're vindicated in claiming that faith by their works, not by their perceived faith alone. Does that make sense? So he's justified in saying, I have faith. How do we know that he's justified in saying that thing? By his works. We see evidences of it. We are justified to say that a tree in the middle of winter is an apple tree, even if there are no apples on it. Because sooner or later, in season, there's going to be at least one apple that shows up. That's why we're justified in saying that is, in fact, an apple tree. Because an apple 
showed up. As soon as that apple shows up, we were justified in saying that that was an apple tree. Do you see how Paul and James are using those words differently? One is saying you are not guilty. You are justified. You are seen as acquitted. The other one is saying you're vindicated. You're justified in saying what you just said. So, what many people will say, another misconception, is that Paul and James, they just disagree. Now, they don't disagree. So, in addition to understanding how they use the word justify, as we just, went, as we just explained there, there are three other quick reasons why we can say that Paul and James agree when it comes to faith and works. The reason number one is that after Paul's conversion, he presented himself to James and the Jerusalem council. We see this in Acts 15 and Acts 21. And in those chapters, what we see is James affirming Paul's ministry. James is saying, you have a right understanding of the gospel. You have a right understanding of how people are made right with God. And he and the council affirm Paul's ministry. And in Galatians 2.9, we see that James extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Friends, if Paul was preaching a gospel contrary to James, where Paul says you're saved by faith alone, and James says, no, you need faith and works to be saved, then James would not have extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. And he also would not have affirmed his ministry. So Paul and James, they're in full agreement. Second reason why we can say they're in full agreement is that the book of James was written before Paul's epistles. So before any of Paul's writings, James had already written this book. And if Paul disagreed with James, you can bet he would have said so. Paul was not afraid to call people out. In Galatians 2.11, he tells us that he corrected Peter to his face because Peter was wrong. In 2 Timothy 4, we see that uh, Paul points out that Demas was in love with the world and left him. In 2 Timothy 4, again, we see how Paul points out that Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm. And in Philippians 4, he tells uh, Yodia and Syntyche to get along. So he's not afraid to, to use names and call people out. And so if he disagreed with James, if they had two different understandings of the gospel, Paul would have said so. Third reason is that Paul describes faith and works the same way that James does. And you've already read that passage today. If you look to the front of your bulletin on the assurance of grace, Paul makes it clear that by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are not saved by our good works. We're saved, and then God has prepared good works for us to walk in. And as we walk in them, it just becomes further evidence that we have, in fact, been saved. Salvation is by grace. It's through faith. It's not a result of works. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Ephesians 2. And James makes it clear here. Yet, friends, Christians were created for good works. God prepared these good works beforehand for us to walk in which is why good works serve as an evidence of a true and living faith. So if you want to identify real faith, look for someone who proclaims the faith and walks in good works, the good works that God prepared for them to walk in and enables them to walk in. Now, a natural question that may come up is, what about the man on the cross? 
He, being hung on a cross, he didn't seem to have any works, Rob. And yet Jesus said that he will be brought into his kingdom. Now, the man on the cross, friends, should serve as an incredible encouragement to all those who feel overwhelmed by their sin. Who all those who feel like my sin far outweighs my good works. First off, we're not saved by having more good works than sin. That's just not the case. All of us have more bad works, more sin than we do have good works. However, for those who feel especially overwhelmed by their sin, let the man on the cross be a great encouragement to you. He was nailed to a tree. He didn't have the opportunity to get down and do all kinds of good works to earn his salvation. Now, the argument could be made that him proclaiming the reality of Jesus being king, remember me when you go into your kingdom, could be a good work that he's publicly proclaiming who Christ is. But even if you count that, that is not going to outweigh all of his sin. Friends, there's ever an obvious example of someone whose sin far outweighed their good works, it would have been the man on the cross. But the good news is we are not saved by our good works. They do serve as evidence, but we are not saved by them. We are saved by faith alone, faith in Christ, the one who entered humanity on behalf of fallen people and the one who lived the perfect life that we were called to live. We are called to walk in good works. We're called to be holy as God is holy. But we have all failed in that in so many different ways, more ways than we could even count. Yet God in his love for us entered into humanity and walked that road perfectly. He lived the life of obedience that we have not lived. His whole life was good works. And he's the only one who has secured the reward of eternal glory with God. So what does a true or living faith do? It reveals itself through good works. Our kids, they like to play hide and seek, and and I like playing hide and seek with them, but to be honest, they're not great at it. And Finley, she's, she's getting a little better. She's our oldest. She's about to turn six. She's getting better at it. But she still wants to be found. I mean, her and Lennon both, when they go hide, they'll make bird sounds. If I'm taking too long, they'll go cuckoo, just to kind of give me a hint, because they want to be found. Me, on the other hand, I, if I'm playing with them, I don't want to be found. So the other day when we were playing, it was dark out, and as soon as they started counting, I just opened up the back door and stepped outside. And it was dark, they couldn't see me. And they're running through the house trying to find me, and eventually, when I realized, okay, they're not going to find me, I... I, I open the door, and I go into a room where they've already looked. After some time, they then eventually find me. But the younger they are, the worse they are at hide-and-seek. They're going to be found. It's easy to find them. And friends, genuine faith doesn't hide well. It can be easily spotted by its good works. That's how you spot it. Genuine faith is identified by action. And so Christian, don't confuse, please, the thing that, there's so much that we said on this passage, the thing that I so badly want to get across to everybody here is that don't confuse the means of your salvation with the evidence of your salvation. The means is by faith alone, in Christ alone, who lived the perfect life for us. We trust him. 
He was the only one to live a life that was with sufficient good works, with sufficient obedience to be considered worthy of entering into God's presence, heaven. Friends, that's just what heaven is. It's, it's being with God. It's his presence for eternity. Christ was the only one who lived a life that was worthy of that. None of us have. And no matter how hard we work, we're not going to suddenly earn it. We could be given a million years to try to do enough good works, and we will not succeed because we still have sin that needs to be paid for. But Christ lived a perfect life. He had a perfect resume, and he had no sin. And for all who rest on Christ, for all who trust in him and his finished work, his finished obedience, the good work that he did on the cross, friends, your sin will be removed. And you'll also be imputed Christ's perfect obedience. We're called to good works, but in our own effort, we cannot have enough good works to secure eternity with a holy God. But Christ has. And if we rest on him, his good works are imputed to us, and our sin, our disobedience, our bad works are imputed to him. And friends, this transaction takes place through faith. And then if that faith is genuine, then as time goes on, there will be works that follow it. But those works are evidence of true faith. If you're not a Christian today, I just want, want to make it as clear as I can to you, as lovingly as I can to you, that your works, no matter how superb, cannot save you from sin. So don't read this and think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I serve at the homeless shelter. I serve at the food pantry. I give away 90% of my salary to those in need. I clothe the poor. I feed the hungry. I, I do all those things. I feel really good about myself. That is not what this passage is saying. Pastor is saying that if you want to identify real faith, then there has to be faith in Christ. And because Christ was good, us, who, we who follow Christ, who follow a good Savior, will walk in good works. And then parents, if you're here, I would encourage you to be intentional in making that distinction clear with your kids. We want the kids here to know Christ. We want them to love Christ. We want them to be obedient. We want them to honor their father and mother. And their behavior is important, but it cannot save them. And so fervently evangelize your kids. Share the gospel with them often. Let them know the distinction between faith and works, but also let them know how those things work together. But don't just hammer home works, otherwise we'll be raising up legalists. We don't want that. Point them to the gospel. The great news, the un... I, I almost said unbelievable, but I mean, we want to believe it. We have to believe it. The, the amazing news that we are saved through faith. Everything else says to work. And the great news of the gospel is that God has worked on our behalf through his son. And if you truly believe that, there will be evidence. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the gospel. Lord, we confess that we do not walk in good works the way that we should. And at times we feel overwhelmed by that. Lord, remind us of the good news that we are not saved by those works. But Lord, we pray that we would pursue them, not only as evidence uh, for assurance, but also to glorify you in the way that we walk in this world. Lord, we pray that this passage uh, would take deep root in our lives. 
and that we would have a right understanding of faith and works. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.